Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this November episode of Word, we talk with a Phoenix poet whose tireless homeless outreach led to a spoken word and jazz album. Really, the main reason that we said Daisy Hugs for the Houseless instead of the Homeless is language is incredibly powerful, you know, and the words that we use hold a lot of weight. Plus, a Valley Gamer has a recently released sci-fi novel. I think speculative fiction is kind of like the nice literary term of almost bringing science fiction into the realm of the fantastic as well as the factual. But first, Dave O. Dodge currently runs a boutique B&B in the Yucatan. He's an international travel writer and recently turned his attention to historical fiction with the publication of his first book, The Seasons of Grace. It tells the unauthorized story of Peyton Place author Grace Metallius. Dodge still spends some of his time in the Valley where he was in the PR industry for many years, and that's where we began our recent conversation. I've been in the Valley on and off. Well, I was there full-time for about 12 years, and now I'm there part-time. I actually live on the Yucatan in Mexico where I have a small hotel. Um, I was the PR marketing director at some luxury retailers, and Phoenix for years, and I had my own marketing and PR company for nonprofits in Phoenix for about six years before um, becoming an innkeeper. Wow, that's an exciting change in life. <laughs> what propelled you to get into being an innkeeper? Well, I don't know. I think that um, the rat race of corporate life and the, the um, constant working was getting to me, but I didn't realize that innkeeping, you're 24-7, so... <laughs> Right. Yeah, I have a lot of friends in the hospitality industry, and uh, I certainly understand what you're talking about. Well, I was a travel writer, and while I still am a travel writer, and I had the fortune of being all over the world writing for luxury hotels and and different destinations. So that's what got me writing since probably the early 90s. And I thought, well, a bed and breakfast would help satisfy my need to live in a foreign country. We only have four suites. I'm the chef, the tour guide, and the airport picker-upper, so I wear many hats here. Obviously, travel writing is different from writing fiction. This book that you've put out, The Seasons of Grace is what it's called. I wonder if you could tell me sort of the differences for you personally that you experienced and maybe a little bit about your writing process and how that changed. Sure. You know, as a, um, a travel writer... And prior to doing that um, professionally, I was a tour guide and I am still a tour guide. And being a tour guide, you have to have the ability to tell a story. You have to be able to tell, make something that is mundane and a statue or a piece of rock come to life for your guests. So I found the research and the storytelling to be very easy for me. So writing historical fiction, because that's my genre that I love to read, was something that came very easily to me. And the subject matter was even closer to me because my protagonist, Grace Metallius, who was a real person, um, she was a very famous author in the 50s, and she went on to write Peyton Place, was in my neighborhood of New Hampshire, French-Canadian like myself, and um, wrote with a passion of, of storytelling and telling stories about what she knew, which was uh, rural New England and New Hampshire. 
as far as the book itself, Peyton Place, I certainly read it, you know, when I was a kid in high school. I don't know how widely it's it's currently read, but even uh, to date myself in the late 80s when I was in high school, it was still kind of shocking because I did go to high school in a small town. Uh, it was in the Midwest. Right. I think it sold something like 60,000 copies within the first 10 days of its release back in 1956. And it was on the bestseller list for the New York Times for like well over a year. Almost um, a year and a half. Yeah. And it was positioned by the publisher to sell 3,000 copies. Wow. Uh, it was Catherine Messner, who her husband had died, was Messner Publishing. And she wanted to tell stories or publish books that women wrote. And one of her editors found this manuscript that had been refused by a few publishers in New York at the time. And she brought it, edited it, they worked together, and it sold 12 and a half million copies in the first year. That's just incredible. I mean, I can't <laughs> imagine something like that, even today, is difficult to equal in terms of sales. Partly because, I mean, there's a heck of a lot more competition out there, but... You know, what attracted you about the material of Peyton Place enough to, okay. you know, want to write your book entitled The Seasons of Grace? I, like Grace, the author, never really went to college. I took a couple of night classes and I took a creative writing class in the 80s, 1981, I think it was. And I wrote a term paper called The Legacy of Peyton Place. Having grown up about, you know, 10 miles from where um, she wrote her novel in a very small town in New Hampshire. And my instructor at the time gave me a C minus on my writing ability and my subject matter. And I, and I, that stuck in the back of my head for many, many moons. And so when I did start to write, I thought, well, I have all this research already done for um, the novel Peyton Place. And I researched the author and then it all came together as a, as a story and a novel that is, is, is sweeping through the 50s into the early 60s. What made you want to write historical fiction as opposed to just go ahead and do a straight biography? I think that biographies are, are really good, and then that's what I use to research. But I don't think that somebody who's attracted to historical fiction who wants to learn about an author or, or an incident, the fiction part of it brings it more to life. It's sort of like being a tour guide. I'm a tour guide for the New Hampshire seasons in 1950 to 1960 and I take my reader down that country road past the stone walls and the picket fences and into Grace's living room or into Grace's um, her study where she's typing away writing her book. Yeah and I would say with extremely accessible language uh, and this book is hefty at over 360 pages I'm always interested in people's writing process particularly when it comes to historical fiction because you're putting in thoughts in people's head that, again, it's based on research, but you're coming up with the material, coming up with the conversations. And especially as this is NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, maybe you could tell us how you went about drawing out characters and what they would say. There is a tremendous amount of nonfiction written about grace a lot of stuff on the web um, there's a biography that was written by the wonderful um, emily toth in 1982 her husband um, after her death actually wrote a book called the girl from painting place all of these books i read and made copious notes at different times of the writing process and then i then took all of them and sort of compiled them into my story and not all the uh, biographies had 
all the elements of, of what I researched. So, and the stuff what was missing, I kind of just let Grace tell me in my head. <laughs> and as I was writing, I, I did feel the sense that um, I was being transported back to that time and era in New Hampshire. Do you think you will stick with the genre in the future? Yes, I've already started my second novel. Well, that's great, Dave. Best of luck on that. And thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your current work, Seasons of Grace. It's a historical novel based on the life of Grace Metallius, who wrote Peyton Place. Thanks again, Dave. Thank you very much. You're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Available wherever you get your podcasts or at word.kjzz.org. Coming up after the break, a Phoenix poet whose tireless homeless outreach led to a spoken word and jazz album. I'm Tom Maxidon. KJZZ Spot 127 News Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. You can get a world-class education without having to leave home. Rio Salado College offers affordable online classes, certificates, and degree programs, award-winning faculty, and flexible scheduling options. Classes start most Mondays. More information at riosalado.edu. Count me in. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music that you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest is an avid poet with published work to his credit. He's also a tireless advocate of the homeless in Phoenix and leads AZ Hugs for the Houseless. Earlier this year, while we were on summer hiatus, Austin Davis released a spoken word album with musician Joe Alley entitled Street Sorrows. I began our recent discussion by asking him how he decided to link his studies in creative writing at Arizona State University to social activism. I've known this for years. A big goal of mine has always been to bridge art and activism. And initially just started out with writing poems about stuff that I was passionate about. But as I got a little older and I met new people, uh, I got introduced to new passions, you know, so... Eddie Chavez Calderon, he's the campaign organizer for Arizona Jews for Justice, and he's been an incredible mentor for me, and he kind of just showed me how to be the kind of leader that I've always wanted to be, you know, so he gave me tips, he taught me how to do it, and then he kind of just let me find my own path, you know, and and go off, so yeah, we we started out, it, it was just going out to the streets and meeting people and seeing how they were doing, you know, and bringing out water and food and little essential stuff like that but mostly it was just making friends you know and from there it just grew tremendously so now we have a a big community of supporters and volunteers and partners and we have weekly events and I'm, I'm really happy with where it's gone and I think we're doing some some pretty cool work and I'm excited to see what happens next yeah you're definitely doing some great work and your social outreach campaign is tremendous and a lot of people know about your efforts of course you know, I interviewed you a summer ago, not this past summer. Uh, I think it was about 110 degrees out at the zone yeah. uh, that time. And, you know, I was just amazed by the fact that, first of all, people knew you, which I think is often rare because a, a lot of way 
people participate in outreach is kind of on an anonymous basis in a way, or maybe they, they'll make a donation to a shelter, for instance, but they're not going tent to tent, as it were, as you do. The term houseless, I can remember a sketch from George Carlin many years ago, famous stand-up comedian who's no longer with us, and he was kind of a linguist at heart, and he was talking about the difference between houseless and homeless, and he was like, in his bit, a home is an abstract idea, right? What these folks need are houses, and I'm curious if your choice to call it AZ Hugs for the houseless was intentional in kind of that same vein. Yeah, you know, I think that language is incredibly powerful, you know, and the words that we use hold a lot of weight, you know. So really the main reason that we said AZ Hugs for the Houseless instead of the homeless is just because there were some people that I met who said they preferred the term houseless. And I thought that it was a more all-encompassing term for what the direct need was. You know, people need houses. People need to be in shelter. And a few people have told me, you know, that they feel like home is the people that they love. The home is the people around them, you know, stuff like that. So I just thought it was more all encompassing term, I guess. As far as your art goes, specifically with respect to poetry, you released a spoken word EP earlier this year when we were on break called Street Sorrows. And it was a collaboration with musician Joe Ali, right? Yeah came out this summer, and it was certainly a departure from the print material that you've released. Uh, I want to say, let's just call it your career, <laughs> you know? <laughs> because you're so devoted, as if it were. Why did you want to combine the arts of literature and music? I love jazz, and I've always loved music. I myself am a terrible musician, and <laughs> I love to mess around on, you know, the piano or guitar, and I'm terrible at it, but it's just for fun, you know? But I think that collaborating across different genres and different art forms is it can be so impactful you know so it really came about naturally because I was doing a show with this group called Desert Spotlight it's a, like a local arts show and I I told the the guy Michael who runs it and I was like hey you know I I have this idea I, I kind of want to collaborate with a jazz musician and he was like done let's do it I'll find someone and I met Joe and the performance that we did was we talked a little beforehand. He read the poems. He messed around a little bit on the guitar, but it was really organic. Like we just kind of went in there and he jammed and this was all live. And I read off of his music and he played based on how I was speaking. And then afterwards I was like, Hey, I have another idea, Joe. <laughs> what if we did a little EP? You know, I've been writing these poems about, you know, my friends on the streets and what I've been experiencing. And I think this could be really cool. And he was down and I think it turned out really well. And all the feedback that I've gotten has been pretty cool. I, I showed it to a lot of friends on the streets as well. And since they're all about real people, you know, and they're all about real experiences, there there were some people who cried in my arms and they were like, this is, I, I don't have any words for this. Kind of just hearing people, you know, react that way to art that's about them or about their situation or just about the larger social issue of homelessness, you know, was, it was a lot for me, you know, it was very emotional. You've been very candid on social media about OCD. I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about that because it is something that affects a lot of people, and it's related in a way to anxiety, which several of my family members experience, myself included sometimes. I'm wondering if that is what drives your tireless efforts, partly 
in the world of literature, but then also with respect to houseless outreach? For sure. I think so. I mean, initially, I started writing as a form of therapy. You know, when I was a kid, I just kind of felt terrible, you know, so I I just started writing these poems. Uh, and well, initially, it started out just because I was reading poems, and they would make me feel better, you know, they'd make me feel seen or heard, or just kind of emotionally hugged, you know, and I think that's one really cool thing about poetry is that you can, you can feel this, this comfort across different spiritual planes, you know, when you read a poem that really connects with you. And I just thought that was magic, you know, and I was like, I, I want to create this kind of magic and help other kids who are feeling what I'm feeling. On the heels of the EP that you released, Street Sorrows, you're working on another collection that you're going to release uh, sometime next year called Lotus and the Apocalypse. And I saw what must be kind of an early draft of a poem that you posted on social media called The World Will End Tonight. One of the things that I have definitely noticed, and you've used the word here just recently, is that love is an extremely common theme throughout your work. I'm a romantic. Yeah. I was just about to ask, are you a hopeless romantic? <laughs> yeah, hopeless romantic till, till the day I die, Tom. Yep. <laughs> That's great. I and mean, I assume that others who know your work have picked up on that, but do you happen to have that handy? Would you want to read it to our audience? Yeah. The pandemic was, was really, really hard for my anxiety, and it still is, you know, but writing these poems helped me immensely. So I was just kind of thinking, what would it feel like if the the world was going to end tomorrow? And I knew that. What would I feel, you know? So throughout the book, each it's it's a story about uh, this character, Lotus, finding out that the world's going to end tomorrow, and this is the last day. So each poem is a meditation on love and mental health and guilt, you know, your past mistakes. That, that, that was something that is a huge theme in this book, is just kind of like, how do you move past things you've done wrong? How do you move through trauma in a way that's positive? It opens with this poem called The World Will End Tonight. The world will end tonight, the weatherman says, when the flower heads twist down at a quarter past six. Remember that summer of hot breath open windows, and making love to the sound of bicycles passing by. Kiss me soft as the clouds peel away from the sun like dark yellow apple skins. Let me hold you, run my hands through your hair these last few minutes. Thanks so much for reading that, Austin. And one of the things that I like about your poetry, and I'm sure others do, is the simple language that you use to express timeless things. And love certainly is timeless but as you indicate sometimes we feel like timelessness is not really something that we can afford yeah. uh, especially when it comes to social activism and social issues but certainly things like global climate change austin i want to thank you so much for coming to word once again thank you so much tom always a blessing to hear your voice and i uh, very gratefully for you my friend you're listening to word a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Available wherever you get your podcasts and at word.kjzz.org. Coming up after the break, a gamer and Valley-based writer who has a new sci-fi novel. I'm Tom Maxidon. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moss shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. 
Most stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. You can't listen to a photograph or hear an interactive map. That's why KJZZ is online and on your phone. Find all the extra stuff you don't hear on air. Listen to KJZZ on 91.5 and see more online and on the mobile app. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest is Lena Nguyen, who has a wide background in creative writing with an MFA in fiction from Cornell University. Recently, she released her sci-fi novel, We Have Always Been Here. But we began our recent discussion talking about her connection to the Valley. I wasn't born and raised in the Valley. We moved here when I was four, but I consider myself a Phoenix girl. Um, uh, Yeah, went to high school right here, went to ASU for undergrad, and then I went to Cornell University for grad school and eventually teaching English um, and creative writing. And then... When I decided I wanted to work full-time on this book, I moved back to the Valley, and I've been here ever since. So I'm a desert writer through and through. (laughs) Are you teaching at all on the side as well still? No, I'm not. Yeah, I'm writing full-time now. Well, that's outstanding that you've been able to make that jump because, unfortunately, a lot of people who want to cannot for one reason or another. Um, And Absolutely. Yeah, I consider myself very fortunate. Yeah, and science fiction is one of those genres that I notice, you know, it's sort of different than romance. I feel like it comes in and out of favor often. Yeah, you know, absolutely. A lot of genres have, I don't want to call them fads, it's just that readers' tastes change from time to time. You know, something like romance seems to stick around no matter what. Fantasy has obviously been around for a long, long time. Uh, we have always been here. Would you classify that as straight science fiction or mixture of science fantasy? How would you describe it? I would say uh, it's speculative fiction. While it toys with a lot of concepts about our future and some scientific concepts, I don't find myself as welded to fact as cold, hard science fiction is. Um So I would say it's more of a mix between mystery, thriller, speculative fiction, and horror. Tell me about that term, speculative fiction. I know people who are in this game know exactly what that means, but for somebody who is an aspiring writer out there listening to this program, what would you say are some of the key ingredients of speculative fiction? I think speculative fiction presents a vision of the future, a potential vision of the future in the same way that science fiction does but doesn't concern itself as much with, you know, when Interstellar came out, Neil deGrasse Tyson was criticizing it on Twitter for, you know, not dealing with things like an event horizon or a gravity well uh, with incredible accuracy. So I think speculative fiction is kind of like the nice literary term of almost bringing science fiction into the realm of the fantastic as well as the factual. Um, I would liken uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale as speculative fiction more than scientific fiction. So that's how I'm defining it. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I get so frustrated when scientists say things like that. And I have a world of respect for Neil deGrasse Tyson. Don't get me wrong. Right. But absolutely. It, but it's like, dude, stay in your lane, please. You <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah. uh, I also found out um, just doing a little bit of research that you're into gaming. And I'm curious, does that coincide with your writing? Like, are are you doing the coding for gaming? Or are you more interested in kind of like writing about the worlds and how the characters might interact? 
Yeah, right now I'm developing my own game. So I'm coding, designing the narratives, writing. I'm pretty much doing everything except um, hiring a few artists here and there. But all of my games are mostly text-based. And they're sort of choice-based stories where the player's choices change the narrative of the narrative and plot of the game itself. So they're kind of like novels where the author and the player are collaborating to sort of bring the story to life together, which I think is a really fun process. And that's what sort of makes it um, kind of a different diversion from traditional fiction for me. But I love both. And I definitely think that video game aesthetics and influences had a big part in how I wrote We Have Always Been Here. And then simultaneously, I think shaping like five or six different stories for a player to experience just from their choices has been, you know, very much influenced by my creative writing skills. Yeah. I used to love choose your own adventure books. That's what we called them when we were kids. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm sure I'm quite a bit older than you, but, the, you know, this is in the early 80s. And it was just awesome because you had often as many as three choices. And then I remembered how that kind of, I guess that, you know, framework got into very early video games like The Oregon Trail, for instance, and which is completely text-based for the most part. Right. Um, and, you know, I I don't know that, I wouldn't say that that necessarily went away, but having, I actually think it's having a comeback. Right yeah, now. yeah, right. And that's kind of what I was alluding to is it, it kind of seems things kind of changed as they always do. But now it's having like a resurgence. And just on a personal note, uh, one of my dear friends and his wife are both in the academic sphere. Their own son has just gone off to college. This is his freshman year. And for a long time during his senior year, he's like, trying to figure out what's going on, the courses they were trying to push him into and like what he was actually interested in. He's like, I'm really interested in gaming. And they're like, come on, kid. You know, like, <laughs> are you serious? And then once he started describing, no, but I'm interested in designing the world and characters. And, you know, one of the parents has a deep literature background. It was like, okay, now I see your vision is much broader than just wanting to, for instance, go into coding. And I was joking with him. I was like, look, coding makes a lot of money for people. You know, you shouldn't try to dissuade them. Were you influenced at all by other folks in your family? Did they accept this direction that you've chosen to go into now? Absolutely. My parents were very supportive um, from a young age, which I think is actually surprising. You know, they're from Vietnam. And I think a lot of people who come from Vietnam and countries around it, with their experiences in sort of having their country taken over by, like, say, a communist government, I think there's like a deep rooted fear of jobs that are perceived as like unstable, whereas more timeless professions like lawyers and doctors, you know, that's always perceived as safe. Um, but my parents from when I was actually like very young, like 10 or 12, recognized that I just really loved writing. So they did everything they could to encourage that. They poured a lot of money into sending me to like Stanford and Harvard in the summers to take writing courses in the summer. And they've just really helped me pursue this career path, even when things were looking, you know, not as promising as maybe uh, they you know, might have envisioned, 
I think they've just supported me along this entire journey. Tell me uh, briefly about the main character or characters in We Have Always Been Here and kind of a bit about the plot. Yeah, so the plot takes place on a spaceship heading to an alien planet that the crew is nominally going to evaluate for human colonization. And it follows the main character, Grace Park, who is the psychologist assigned to the ship. Um, And basically, she is observing things completely spiral out of control because the patients on her ship begin experiencing nightmares and delusions and sleepwalking episodes. It's kind of a plague, but it's not as outright scary or alarming as like a zombie plague, Um, but just unsettling enough for people to start, you know, freaking out, but not enough for them to sort of immediately pull the plug on the operation. So that's the premise of the novel. And I think Park is a really interesting figure because she is a psychologist, but she doesn't really like people. She kind of became a psychologist (laughs) to understand them better. And it doesn't really work that well because she was raised by androids in this version of a future earth where it's more common for child rearing and other jobs to be taken over by AI. So she's sort of, her brain is kind of mechanical in that way. She's only really socialized with androids. And so she's kind of ostracized by the people on the ship. And that's like a large root of the conflict of the novel is her inability to connect to other people. I think that's not uncommon. Unfortunately, after what we've been through the last 18 months, that continues. Does she ever find an ability to connect? Yes, absolutely. That is a central part of the plot. I think her particular kind of empathy is kind of a bridge between these machine minds and the human minds aboard the ship. Lena Nguyen is author of We Have Always Been Here. I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us a little bit about yourself, your writing process, and also your latest work. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Word. We're going on hiatus for at least the next month for medical leave and hope to be back with fresh content in early December. In the meantime, it's our end-of-year campaign. Become a member and help us reach our 1,500 new member goal. That will unlock $30,000 of matching funds that have been generously donated by Leadership Society members. Go to kjzz.org and click on the Donate tab, and we thank you so much. And a special shout-out to all those participating in National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo. Take care. I'm Tom Maxidon. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.